0: I was just remembering, there's that saying that the dharma is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. At the beginning of uh, the first retreat talk for this month, that's very comforting, actually, to know that it's good everywhere. Some of you are a little surprised that the dharma talk is actually now. Sylvia said she had a couple of people who were a little shocked, but some of us are getting old, you know, and so the theory was that we would be happier and have more energy to talk in the late afternoon than in the evening. So here's a question for you. What has become clear to you since last we met? What has become clear to you since last we met? maybe this morning, maybe yesterday evening. Something probably became clear today. Maybe it was just that you were tired, or maybe it was how happy you are to be on retreat, or, who knows, some seeing of impermanence. But something probably did become clear. So just ask yourself, what has become clear? It's the end of day thirty, for some of you. And it's the end of day one, for the rest of you. And my guess is that if we polled the room, there would be a huge variety of experiences happening. There'd be some lostness and some restlessness. Some of you are kind of in what I call the swamp of the first day of retreat. And some of you who have been here for those thirty days are settling back in sort of picking up your course after a, a possibly couple of bumpy days and feeling your way into a somewhat new routine and a new set of teachers. There's a poem I'm liking to read at the beginning of retreats these days. It's by John O'Donohue, and he says, I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. So really the question is, how do we wake up to our own unfolding here at the retreat? And what might that look like for each one of you? What is the awakening that you're seeking here? Last night Sylvia did bring us that Amazing question of Ben Franklin's, I've been living with it all day. And I could even imagine not only might we start our Dharma talks with it, we could start our practice conversations with each one of you as you come in week after week, day after day, you know. What has become clear to you since last we met? What have you waked up to? So Buddhism is often known as a path of awakening, there's a way And there are many, many practices and teachings about how to wake up. And one of the, it's a list of lists, actually, that the Buddha mentioned many times towards the end of his life is one that is quite wonderfully called the Wings of Awakening. The Wings of Awakening, the Bodhipakya Dhamma. And it is a collection of lists, and it's a list of the core teachings of the Buddha. If you've spent some time with this collection, you've learned a lot about the teachings and about practice, about what's needed in order to wake up. It's kind of a basic syllabus, if you will. So in this retreat, in this month of the retreat, we decided that we would use it as a a kind of umbrella, for the talks, that we will gather the talks under that umbrella in a fairly creative and generous way. We're not just going to go lockstep in a line from one list to the other um, and use it as a way to um, guide our teaching. So here's the list, just so you'll know the four foundations of mindfulness body, feelings, mind, and dhammas. The four wise efforts, supporting and developing skillful mind states, abandoning and avoiding unskillful. The four bases of power, will, energy, intent, or consciousness, discrimination. Then there are two lists that have the same things in them. One is called the five faculties, and the other is called the five strengths. So that's faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. The seven factors of awakening, mindfulness, interest, effort, rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And the eightfold path, wise view, wise intention, wise action, speech, and livelihood, and wise effort, concentration, and mindfulness. So even in listening, you're probably thinking, oh, some things are on the same, you know, they come up more than once, they're on different lists. And then there's that list that shows up twice as two different lists. So it's clear that they all overlap and interlock. And I love it that there's 37 wings for awakening. I've been sort of trying to imagine what would a being with 37 wings look like? You know, it'd be a lot of wings and it'd be kind of hard to coordinate it. But maybe it's better for us as practitioners to think of these wings as being kind of a collection of tools for us. And we can select the wing or wings that will help us fly, you know, each day. You may be working sometimes with effort and sometimes with mindfulness and sometimes with how you are with Vedana and sometimes with faith and sometimes with rapture or tranquility. be different for each person each day. But they're there and they're useful to all of us. And so we'll be teaching from this list and we'll also be teaching about the quality of mind and heart that you bring to your time here on on the cushion. And so we'll be considering that second question that Sylvia brought last night, you know, what evokes the open and reverential heart, you know. So we'll be teaching here in the Dharma talks in the afternoon, and again in the Brahma Baharas in the evenings, about developing the heart, on developing kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity, and doing these practices for ourselves and doing them for all other beings. So the heart, you know, the awakening of the heart, becomes, really creates a ground, creates the ground of the heart on which other awakening and insight can arise. And for some of you, particularly maybe those of you who have been here for a while, it may seem a little paradoxical because, you know, the practice of mindfulness in the way that it accepts whatever is, is inherently kind. You know, there's a lot of kindness and compassion that arises just when we do mindfulness practice. But we often derail that, don't we? You know, there are these places where we get so rigid and judgmental and critical and self-hating. And, and so there's, there's blocks to that, to that ground. And so it's really helpful to do these practices and to think about opening the heart. So, also last night, Larry um, talked about the universal yearning for freedom, that way in which in all cultures and all spiritual practices there's that desire to wake up to the truth of our being, to try to understand what is going on. So, we know the story of the Buddha, you know, that story of of how he was startled, really, you know, he, he, he was only 29, he was getting out for the night going to town, he it was escaping the palace with his charioteer, I don't think he was probably thinking that anything was going to happen, you know, and then all of a sudden those heavenly messengers, you know, someone who was old and someone who was sick and someone who was dead and then the monk who walked through, and he was just completely astounded. What? What is this? And so that's what launched him on his journey. You know, he went home and he shaved his head and he went off into the forest and he studied with the best teachers that he could find. And he worked with them really, really hard and, you know, increasing increasingly deep insight and wisdom, but it didn't quite bring him the wisdom that he was seeking, the awakening, the complete awakening. And then, you know, he had that memory of his father, you know, doing the spring plowing and and that kind of presence, the focused and concentrated mind. And um, he had the experience under the Bodhi tree of waking up whatever that really mysterious event was that, that happened there. You know, we were talking with John about his recent trip to India, and sitting under the Bodhi tree, and any of you who have ever sat under it know that sitting under the Bodhi tree is still, huh, I don't think I'm anywhere remotely close to being as awake as the Buddha, but sitting there definitely has a certain energy to it still. Um, And we know that whatever it was that happened there, he was so inspired, he was so on fire, that he began to teach. And here we are, 2,565, did you say? 55 55 years later, in California, at the center, still talking about what happened. Amazing, huh? You know, I often say, I don't think anybody in 2,500 years is going to be talking about what Mary Grace Orr said. You know, I just don't think it's going to happen. But, so that, that's what lets me know that there was something so powerful in, in this event under the tree. So each of you has come, whether you've been here for the first month or whether you've just arrived and you've come seeking awakening of some sort. Some of you probably were called by those same messengers, those same heavenly messengers, some realization of your own aging, or perhaps an illness. Sometimes, you know, we get those difficult diagnoses, or we're around someone who's just been told that they may not have very much more time here. Or maybe it's the difficult messenger, the heavenly messenger of the end of a relationship, or a job, or a period of time when you're not employed, or the end of a particular um, time of your life, a transition time. And they jolt us. You know, these messengers, they come along, and they just knock us out of our ruts, and out of our complacency, and are out of our habitual patterns, and it's often really upsetting and really scary and painful. You know? But they wake us up. You know, a friend of mine who was a hospice worker once said, it was amazing to her how many people didn't realize they were here until they were told that they weren't going to be here much longer. You know, that. And I've had friends in recent week, weeks, you know, a very dear friend who's dealing with Um, a very serious brain cancer and probably chances aren't real great that she will survive it. And, you know, another friend, I just got news today of another friend's father who died very suddenly and um, talked recently with a practitioner that I know who was in the emergency room with a heart attack. And he said when he went in, he said, yeah, I thought I knew who I was. As, I, as they started all the procedures that they do, said by the time they were done with me, I realized I didn't know who I was, which I thought sounded pretty good actually, you know. So we have these questions: What is this? You know, who am I? What might it be to wake up? Does the enlightenment of the Buddha you know mean that he knew everything that there is to know in all of time and space? There are people who think that it was that some kind of supra human event, you know? Or does it mean that there was something about his mind, some shift that happened, where his mind was very awake and very available to wake up? That's the thing that I think is so important. Available to wake up over and over and over again to the deepest truth of every situation, to every new knowledge as it comes along. There's a Tibetan prayer that I say pretty much every day in my practice. It says, may I generate the mind of awakening. May I generate the mind of awakening. And I love that because it sort of pushes me to realize that I might not be there, I might not be awake yet, but I can be ready to wake up. I can have a mind that is prepared to wake up. So perhaps that's what the Buddha had, a mind that didn't resist waking up, You know, I can't even imagine being that willing. How much laziness and resistance and fear and all of the things that come for us when we just, you know, it's like, no, I don't want to see it, you know, take it away. So here at the retreat, it's a wonderful stance that you can really work with, that you could consider. You can have the stance of being willing to wake up. Being willing to wake up. Can you be available to wake up in every moment of this retreat. The ones that are yummy and blissful and delicious and the ones that are difficult and hard where you feel stuck, where you feel like you've forgotten every meditation instruction you ever heard. And can you wake up to that? So for those of you who've just come, whew, It's a huge change coming to retreat, isn't it? You know, it's a time of a lot of renunciation. You've let go of your normal way of being and all of the things that support you, your familiar food and your bed and, you know, all the special treats that we all have in our own lives. Sometimes life here, as deluxe as Spirit Rock is, life here can be a bit uncomfortable. And... Life here is very slowed down and really quiet, time to watch the deer and the turkeys and sit in the sun. And so then we also have the opportunity to use this time, to use every event that happens as a teacher and everything that happens as an opportunity to wake up. So, you know, when you suffer, Cool, great, you're suffering. So notice you're suffering. Use the opportunity to understand suffering a little bit more, to see what the conditions are for it, to notice what intensifies it. If I do more of this, it gets worse. If I do that, it gets a little better. Huh, interesting. So you become a student of your own suffering. You're waking up through your suffering. Or maybe you're having a time of great peace and joy and happiness and light and space and all of that. It's easy to get lost in those moments. And it's really important to notice them, to notice the conditions for your joy and your bliss. Notice what intensifies it. Notice what happens when it begins to fade out on its own, because it is, like everything else, impermanent. And what happens if you grab on and hold on? You know, you create, all of a sudden you go from bliss to suffering, don't you? It's pretty amazing. So everything, you know, all these, the bumpy places, the blissful places, they're all places where the the light comes in. I think of that wonderful old Leonard Cohen song song where he says, there's a crack, a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in. So in every moment there's a crack where the light of awakening can come in. So there's a teaching that I've found very, very helpful for many years in my practice Um, and that I've offered a number of times and I want to share with you again today, comes from the great Thai meditation master, Buddhadasa, and he said, there is nothing to do, there is nowhere to go, and there is no one to be. You could write it on your hand, would be a good idea, actually. You know, there's nothing to do, there's nowhere to go, and there's no one to be. And so often, you know, you've come here to wake up, right? And when we come to this kind of a place to wake up, we think often think it's about doing something or getting somewhere or being someone usually very different from the person that you are that you came to the retreat as, you know. And And we get really... You know, some energy going around that. And it's not that we don't set an intention. We talked a little bit this morning in here about setting an intention. And we do set an intention. You do have an intention to wake up. But it's very important to remember that intention is a bit like setting a compass course. You know, you decide you're going to go north. Great. You set out, you go north. But what happens often? You kind of wander off course a little bit and then you have to bring yourself back to north. And then you wander off maybe the other direction and then you have to bring yourself back to north. Now, there was an airline pilot once who was asked, you know, how do you keep the plane on course, dri- driving it all the way across the country? He said, we're never on course. We're always coming back. So that's that's intention. That's that Always coming back over and over and over. But it's not about gritting your teeth and tightening up your belt and clenching your fists and having to get somewhere. That's a problem. Nothing to do, nowhere to go, no one to be it really suggests that waking up might, just might, happen best under the conditions similar to what we have here of being still of being present with mind and body and heart, of penetrating our experience with our awareness. So I'm just going to talk about each one of them a little bit. There's nothing to do. Here's a poem from Kabir. He says, Don't go outside your house to see flowers. My friend, don't bother with that excursion. Inside your body, there are flowers. One flower has a thousand petals. That will do for a place to sit. Sitting there, you will have a glimpse of beauty inside the body and out of it, before gardens and after gardens. Don't have to go anywhere to see the flowers. Just be right here. So, you know, if you have just arrived, you've probably had the last many days of endless doing. Often when I've been preparing to go on retreat, I think about that phrase that people work with, again, looking at the ends of their lives of getting their affairs in order. And I always feel like I have to spend the last week or so getting my affairs in order. I don't know whether I think I'm going to die on retreat or not, but... You know, everything has to be all lined up and, um, so that it's, that it's going to be okay for a month. That's, that's a lot, really. And not only that, we come from a really restless and unrested world where we all work too often and too much and too late, and we are utterly enchanted by all of the devices that make everything happen faster and faster and faster and faster. And faster. So, and if you've been here, you know that it's interesting, you can still create doing, can't you? You know, even those of you who have been here for the month, you know, there's some obsessive way that we can latch on to a particular way of practicing or a particular instruction, and we have to follow it just right, and we have to be a good meditator. The invitation this morning at the instruction set, was to just give your attention to one thing, a little bit, maybe, the breath. You know, that's enough. Isn't that amazing? Imagine, you know, those lists that we have in our everyday life, and if there was just one thing on it that said, just notice the breath, and come back every time you wander off. (sighs) It's enough doing, and we invite you not only to let that be, just this little bit of doing, but to relax into it. Relax into the breath. Don't hold on to it. Relax into it. Rest with the breath. You know, Soften into the breath. Soften into the body. Rest in the heart, whatever the state of the heart is. If, maybe, even if it's sad, rest in that sadness, just noticing, just to be here. You know, it's so hard to get ourselves just to be here on the retreat. And if you remember that what I told you just a few moments ago about that moment when the Buddha began to realize what he needed to do in order to wake up was that memory of sitting probably on a spring afternoon like this one, You know, I went for a walk earlier, there's blossoms everywhere, like there are here, the birds are singing, the sun is shining. And I have memories, actually, of sitting on the back step of our family home um, when I was, I don't know, seven or eight, I think I had one of my favorite dolls, and I was just sitting there, just being. And the Buddha was just sitting there, he was just a child, watching his father work in the garden. Just being. Mary Oliver says this, she says, Instructions for living a life. Pay attention. Be astonished. Tell about it. Pay attention. Be astonished. Tell about it. So, so you know, this not doing, this just being present does not mean that we never work for change, in our practice or in the world, even. You know, wise action actually requires enough stillness to be fully present with whatever pain and suffering is before us, in our hearts and minds and bodies or in the world, in order to take it in and then to know what is the skillful thing to do. So we are learning to rest in silence, some of you have been doing this for a while, you know, to wait until we do begin to see clearly, to liberate the heart and mind as much as possible through the seeing in order to act from the place of freedom. It's really important to say, to remind those of you who have been here for the month and those of you who are new, We cannot make insight and wisdom arise. It's not like you can dial it up just right and then push the button and then the insight drops out of the little slot somewhere. I wish, you know, it would be so easy. All we can do is to be here in the stillness to create the conditions of quiet attention in which wisdom will arise on its own. The other night, John asked of the continuing yogis in the little talk that we had together in the in-between night. He said, how still can you be in this still world? You know, can you be still in this still world? Can we be still and available to to wake up to the deep truth of every moment, to wake up to the Dharma? So then, There's nowhere to go. There was a sign that got posted on that button board out in the hallway once. It said, do not improve. Very cool. Do not improve. Some of you may have come here thinking you were going to improve, you know, that you were going to get quieter, or that you were going to deepen your practice. And some of you may even be, after the first thirty days, feeling a little discouraged. It doesn't look like all that improvement is happening. And really, in this instruction, we are invited to let go of the striving to get somewhere. Probably most of you know this, but I don't think it hurts to say it more than once. Retreats with agendas are a sure recipe for suffering. If you have an agenda for your retreat, if you have an agenda for the second month of the retreat, the first one having already gone by, please, I invite you to let go of it, you know. Just let go, because having that notion that it's going to go into a particular place is not very helpful. Hadowidge, who was a great mystic in the 12th century, said, You who want knowledge, seek the oneness within. There you will find the clear mirror already waiting. And what she's saying is, what we seek is here. What we seek is here. We wake up here. We wake up to the way it is. We wake up to the way an itch is. This is the way itching is. This is the way hearing is. This is the way the sound of the turkeys is. This is the way my fear is. This is the way impermanence is. One moment after another. This this very careful attention just to the present moment now is when we can know. Isn't that interesting? You cannot know in the future and you cannot know in the past. You can only know now in the clarity of this present moment. There are so many stories that what we seek is exactly where we are, you know. So the hero or the heroine goes out on their journey to find the jewel or whatever it is they're seeking, and they wander all over the world, and then they discover that it's been buried in their garden or it's sewn into the hem of their garment or their robe. The journey seems to be required. They never find it right away but it's always somehow back at the beginning. So freedom, this awakening, it's not some place that you get to. It's not out there. It's always available in every present moment. There is no moment that does not have the possibility of freedom. That's always the question to ask yourself. No matter what's going on, where is the freedom in this moment? You don't get to change the moment. You know, whatever's happening is happening. But the place of freedom is there. I'm absolutely convinced to it, of it. And it's, it's what we make real. We realize it. We find it in that present moment. It can be very very ordinary. A story came my way recently. I was actually asked to write a little commentary on it. Um, It's a Zen story, and it's a story about these three monks, and they were on a pilgrimage. So you can imagine these three guys, you know. And they met a woman who had a tea shop, And so they came in and the woman fixed a pot of tea, a proper thing to do to serve the monks, and she was, after all, a woman. And she said to to the monks, she said, Oh monks, let those of you with miraculous powers drink tea. So the three look at each other, you can kind of imagine, now what do we do, you know? (laughs) Who's going to show their miraculous powers? You're not supposed to do that even if you think you have them. And um, so they're sitting there kind of, and she says to them, watch this decrepit old woman show you her own miraculous powers. And she picked up the cups, poured the tea, and walked out of the room. Just like that. So what is that? It's one of those wonderful Zen koans, you know. The mind, you can, Your mind can chew on it a little bit. What, is, what was the freedom there? What was the awakening that was in the simple, ordinary... Just pour the tea. It's all the miracle you need. There's so much miracle in a cup of tea and we don't even need to talk about that. The sun and the moon and all the people and, you know. So here we invite you to practice. It's a kind of a renunciation of being contented with just what is. Not hoping for a better moment. Not the next sit. You know, the next sit it will get better. You know, tomorrow. But always, where is the freedom in this moment? This aching back, in this sad heart, in this student next to me who's sniffling or sneezing or sounding like they're really sick and, oh dear, I'm going to get it. You know, well, maybe, but there's freedom there if you if you look for it. Where is it? Where is the freedom? Give up. If you've got any of those agendas, give up. Give up over and over and over again. Let go. Let go. Let go into awakening. And then when you're here, that's where, again, you can s- explore this geography of suffering and liberation, noticing when you suffer and when you are free. All of the instructions that you are going to hear during these talks, in the instructions, in the Brahma Viharas, in the practice meetings, all of the instructions are instructions for the investigation of your own mind and heart. So they're for you to take and try them out not for you to swallow whole or to believe. Please test them and find out what is true for you. Find out where your experience of suffering teaches you and find out where your places of freedom are. Hakuin, also another Zen teacher, and he says, you know, This very place is the lotus land of purity. This very body is the body of the Buddha. When we wake up, then this very body, this very place, is the Buddha. So then, no one to be. So being someone, you know, we like being someone, right? We're all trained to be someone. We're trained to know who we are, we train our children to know who they are, where we live and what your zip code is and what your telephone number is. And we could have a lot of fun for probably several weeks in here talking about who we are. You know, we've all got lots of stories and we've all done lots of interesting things. And all of you, almost certainly, have done all kinds of improvement projects on yourselves, You know, you've done therapy and exercise and diet and meditation retreats. And we all have quite a bit of baggage. Quite a bit of baggage. When I first floundered into the retreat, no one knew me. Not even myself, staggering under a huge trunk, crammed with humiliations, bottled like urine samples. Nail kegs of anger, Copies of abusive letters, chemistry quizzes with F's, the memory of the horse I never had, and of the two casseroles, my favorite recipe, no one ate at the potluck supper. No one remarked that I had brought too much. So we all come with this baggage, right, with these trunks of ourselves, lots of personality, lots of memories, lots of issues. And it's probably true that many of you are a bit weary of this personality of yours. I know I get really tired of the Mary Grace Orsi scene after a while. You know, it keeps coming around with its neuroses and its hang-ups and its resistances. I had a wonderful moment some years ago. I was traveling in Spain with my father on an elder hostel trip. In those days I was young enough to be the child on the elder hostel trip. I think I was 55 and, um, or 60 maybe, and there was a guy on the trip, he was a bit difficult, and um, but, you know, we were all working with him as best we could, and we all went out to dinner one night, and there's all these older people sitting around the table, you know, and big long table. Um, so he, at some point, pipes up, and he says, you know, there's one person on this trip that I really don't like very much, And that's Mary Orr. (laughs) Fortunately, I don't know why, I was in a really kind of okay place. And I looked at him and I said, you know, I have a lot of trouble with her myself. (laughs) Which was, of course, not at all the answer that he expected. And after that, we got to be pretty good friends, actually, you know? It was really a wonderful, wonderful moment. It really helps to know that these personalities are really a problem. So the Buddha teaches there's nothing that's permanently yourself, right? Not your body, not your feelings, not your perceptions, not your mental formations, not your consciousness, all the those five aggregates. What's left? There isn't anything left. How can this be? You know, it's one of the central... Questions in our practice. We know that every time we put I, me, and mine right in the middle of everything, that causes problems. It's always true, always true. And even here at the retreat, you know, these little ways. Where the self, we start selfing, can I ask a really good question during the questions that everybody will notice? My good question, can I sit stiller than anybody else? Can I sit longer? I can remember some competitive long sits late at night in my years of practice. You know, somebody else is over on the other side of the room, who's going to get up and leave first? You know, and so, you know, that's not, you know, that's definitely creating shelf in the the middle of this retreat. And, you know, you may find a few places where even here you say, I am a person who, I am a person who never eats tofu. I am a person who has to have, and then you can create your list of what it is, and all of these are places, you know, if you catch yourself saying that, it's usually some story that we have about ourselves that may or may not be true and that we can sometimes put down. No one knows who you are here. Isn't that fabulous? No one knows who you are. I look around the room, I know a very few of you, but I know nothing about many of you. It's really great. I don't expect you to be a doctor or a teacher or a mom or to have a particular sexual orientation, you know, I don't know anything. So you don't have to be any of those things. You could try being something different. If you've been a doctor all your life, try, I don't know, being a truck driver and just see what happens. I mean, you don't, it's very, very interesting to realize that we don't have to lock ourselves into these personalities of ourselves. There's another great Zen story that I'm not going to tell all of, um, although maybe I will later in the retreat. But it's a story about one of the Chinese emperors who um, was trying really hard to be a spiritual practitioner. and It's very hard to be the head of state and to have a spiritual practice and have people who will be really straight with you. And one day he, uh, after years of trying, He walked into his court and here was this great big giant of a man with red hair and blue eyes and unbeknownst to him, but we know it now, was Bodhidharma, the great Zen sage. And the emperor looked at him and he said, "Um, you know, I've been trying really hard to do spiritual things and be of benefit to people and I've built hospitals and schools and so what do you think about the merit of all those acts? And Bodhidharma looked at him and said, no merit. Wow. You know, you don't tell the emperor that there's no merit to all of these things that he's done. And so the emperor immediately kind of went, oh, he's not messing, you know, he's being straight with me, not messing around. So then he said, "Um, what about all these volumes and volumes of spiritual teachings? And Bodhidharma said, nothing special, vast emptiness. that really got the emperor's attention. And so he looked at him and he said, Who are you standing there? And Bodhidharma said, I haven't got a clue. (laughs) I haven't got a clue. Isn't that wonderful? I'd completely recommend it to you as a practice. Every now and then ask yourself, Who are you sitting there? And then answer, I don't know. It's really wonderful. It's really wonderful to try it, you know. So, during this next month, you're gonna have a lot of wings to try out. We're gonna give you some different sets of wings. But most importantly, they're all about waking up. You don't have to be anyone while you're doing it. You don't have to go any place You have no place to go, and you have very, very little to do. Very little to do. See if I can find my list again. You've got body and feelings, dharmas. You've got effort and energy. You've got will and intention and consciousness faith, concentration. You've got rapture and investigation or interest. You've got wise action and speech, wise mindfulness. Those are just some of the many, many things that we're going to be talking about. They're all there to help you wake up and you can test them. And you can try out also the wings, the wonderful wings of kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity. And over and over again you can let go, let go into the awakening that is there in, that, in every moment. Because there will be, almost certainly, moments, just moments, when there's no greed, there's no hatred, there's no delusion. That's the definition of awakening, and a mind—a mind of no greed, no hatred, no delusion. There may be just a moment, oh, a moment of freedom. Galway Canal says, "Whatever what is is, is what I want. Only that, but that." Whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. So let's breathe together. Just sit exactly as you are, and let's breathe together for a moment. I would love to live like a river flows carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. So thank you very much for listening and... Um, we have about 45 minutes for walking practice before tea or supper. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit org slash donate.